Hi, I'm Amy Silverman, co-curator of Barflies, Phoenix's monthly live reading series. Each month, you can hear locals and their true stories on stage at Bally Bar. This month, we take a listen to the pieces from our June 2018 edition, the theme, Act Natural. First up, Alex Tucci with Pretty Funny, a story about falling down and standing up. Everyone who's been to college tells you a lot about the good parts, like the wild parties, the late nights with friends, the first taste of freedom in the real world. Uh, but coming out of my freshman year at Boston University, I'm here to remind everyone that all the good shit that you remember is a colossal fucking lie society perpetuates on the same scale as Santa Claus and the idea that Ronald Reagan was a good president. Ouch. The thing I remember most from my freshman year at Boston University um, was one of the scariest nights. It was April 13th, 2018, and that evening, I stood in the center of the George Sherman Union, fully prepared to take my pants off in front of an audience of people I didn't know. For context, I'm a comedy nerd. Um, I've been a comedy nerd for about as long as I can remember, from when my dad would play George Carlin, Jerry Seinfeld, specials in the car, all the way back to me as a baby with jingling keys. Um, my mom likes it too, but in doses. Uh, she used to come in and watch The Jerk with Steve Martin with us sometimes, but never the pure stuff. Like you'd never catch her walking in and laughing at Chappelle talking about how he always knew that OJ was guilty. Um, but that's what I got hooked on. So that's why I said yes when my friend Armand uh, asked if I wanted to sign up to do five minutes of stand-up at 11.45 p.m. on a Friday night in just a few days. Uh, I didn't really think I would do it. Like, I'd get bumped, things would fall through with the venue. I didn't have much confidence uh, that the 24-hour Escape to Margaritaville comedy and improv marathon would come through. But that's okay, um, because even though I loved comedy, I never thought I could do it. I've been on stage a lot. Uh, I was a theater geek in high school, big surprise there. Uh, but stand-up was never really something that crossed my mind, uh, because I would be on stage alone. In theater, you've got a whole cast who's got your back. But if you bomb at stand-up, there is no one to blame but yourself. If your set sucks, you suck, plain and simple. Uh, I was counting down the days until Friday, waiting for that inevitable so sorry email. But that email never came. And eventually it was Friday morning. And I was completely terrified. To me, comedy is like heroin. I know that's a bold statement to make, especially coming from somebody who's never done heroin before, so <laughs> disclaimer, I'm sure stand-up comedy is nothing like heroin. But I guess I'm not so sure about that, um, because feeling the rush of joke after joke landing in a near-perfect set is the closest thing to magic that I think we as humans can get. Uh, this fix was relatively low risk, I figured. Just five minutes. You can do anything for five minutes and pretty close to midnight, so no one's going to show up. Uh, piece of cake, right? Wrong, because nothing's easy for me, because the truth is I'm kind of sick. In the fall months of 2016, I started feeling bad. Like, really, really bad. Not physically, necessarily, just kind of stagnant. It was hard for me to do anything, even the little things that I needed to do, like brush my teeth. Um, I didn't really think much of it, just the perils of growing up, I told myself. That's what I told myself when I stopped sleeping and eating. 
That's what I told myself when I began missing class because I was too busy crying on the bathroom floor to get up and go back. And that's what I told myself when I seriously started considering ending my own life. Uh, it took me a year to convince myself that I needed help. I went to therapy for the first time and was diagnosed with five conditions, insomnia, panic attack, both generalized and social forms of anxiety, and severe depression. Um, all those things kind of suck. Insomnia means you can't sleep, obviously. Panic attacks feel like there's a little person inside of your chest trying to get out. Both kinds of anxiety feels like there's an assassin after you all the time, but also he's a really shitty assassin. Um, like, he'll leave me little clues, like I thought I left my keys in the kitchen, why are they in my room, that kind of thing. Uh, just to know, so I know that he's there. Uh, I'm always a little nervous that something catastrophic is about to happen, like for real. Um, I don't know when, I don't know what, all I know is that he will strike, someday, after he's done fucking around with my keys. Depression, um, it's not as fun as all the other shit. It's not as how they make it out to be in the movies with all like the constant sobbing. Um, they cut out all the boring parts in the movies, so they cut out all the boring parts of depression because depression is mostly just laying down until you can't lay down when you are anymore. Then you go lay down on something else. Um, I guess it's like laying down on a bunch of different things to see if they can jostle loose your happiness hiding in the back corner on the tallest shelf of your mind. Funny people are often the most depressed, and that's why I think most everyone I know is a goddamn comedian. Um, I stopped going to therapy at the end of the summer, uh, so that means I'm better, right? That's what I thought. Uh, that's why it struck me a little funny, too, that on April 13th, 2018, at 10.15 p.m., when a billion thoughts raced through my mind, like, what if you're not funny? You're not funny. You're a fraud. You're a hack. You can't do this. You will die of embarrassment on the stage. Like, actually die of embarrassment on that stage. You're going to go into cardiac arrest after a rush of adrenaline when no one laughs at your stupid goddamn jokes, and you will die on that stage. So that was a fun pep talk from my mental illness. Um, <laughs> one of the most important things my therapist told me is that confidence can come from the most unexpected places. So that is why I decided to strip and tell some jokes. So I know that you've heard of stand-up before, but strip down, that's innovative. Uh, don't mistake this foolhardy choice for courage in my abilities or my body. Think of it more as a, a fail-safe. Every time I told a joke where I didn't get a laugh where I thought it would, I would have to strip. So I better be funny if I didn't want to be exposed, and at least if I died on stage, I'd die naked. Because that's just good comedy. Um, I sat in the back row of, of the bar and took stock of exactly who was showing up. The audience was sparse, mostly composed of other comedians and improvisers who were required to stay the full 24 hours. Uh, this did nothing, however, to allay my fears, because being naked is being naked no matter how you look at it. At least one person would end up seeing the family jewels that night. Um, but as the first comedian went up, something interesting started to happen, something legendary. Something miraculous. More people started to show up. Like, more people? How is that possible? Because throughout my childhood, in movies, in television, in stories from friends, I'd been led to believe that on Friday nights, college students liked to party. They're off at some cookie-cutter frat house. Now, nowhere in Animal House did the brothers take a break from putting a cow in the dean's office to go and catch an amateur comedy hour. Why are people showing up here? 
I guess I lied earlier, um, because taking your clothes off in front of one person is a lot different from taking your clothes off in front of 70 people. Um, and as I approached the stage, I found myself repeating a mantra that I used to use a lot. Be cool, stay calm, no one knows you're a hack but you, act natural. It didn't work, uh, but somehow I found myself on stage. Now, if you know one thing about Arizona, it's one of two things. It has the Grand Canyon or it's hot as hell. And I would know, I've spent the past 19 summers here burning my hands on the goddamn steering wheel every time I climb into the car and producing enough sweat each day to end the drought in California. But no summer heat I've ever felt compared to, the compared to those scorching stage lights. They were so bright I felt naked already. Everyone in the audience could see my every move, every thought, every feeling. I felt like there was nothing in between me and facing near certain death. So why not get on with it? If you guys don't laugh where I think you're going to laugh, I think I'm just going to take something off. Uh, which is truly a win-win for me, because if you laugh, then I am killing it. And if not, I can convince myself that going to the gym every other Saturday is really working for me. <laughs> um, this is an improv comedy festival, so I figured I'd do some improv comedy. Uh, if somebody wants to throw out some names of suggestions of activities one might do to keep warm. Come on, you can shout them out. That's how this works. Anything, anything. Did I hear masturbating in an airplane bathroom? I think I did, somewhere in the very back. Um, thank you. I really like the idea of masturbating in an airplane bathroom uh, because it's like being a sperm donor without the commitment. Um, it's also like this little piece of you gets to go somewhere you've never been to before. Like, I've never seen St. Louis, but I've probably been four or five times. Uh, so people laughed. Um, and they kept laughing. And I only ended up taking off one shoe that night. It was terrifying, but there was also something funny about it. Funny about the way I was so scared. Funny about the way that I had thought that dealing with my mental illness was just a one-and-done thing. But most funny that I succeeded. Success for me that night looked like being ready to strip and tell jokes to strangers. Now that's not something that I'd ever tell myself looked like success a year ago. In fact, if you asked me then, I'd probably say that's what crazy looks like. But I guess I'll take it. Thank you. That was Alex Tucci. Our next storyteller is April Atwood who trips across the globe with Always Order Peking Duck. Singapore is what a real-life Disneyland town would look like. All the streets are beautiful and clean. Crime is almost non-existent. I found myself in this make-believe city on the first stop of a two-week tour of Asia for business. I'm a researcher, and I had spent the last few months surveying the Asian population. If you've ever taken an online survey about your secret habits, thinking, no one's going to look at this, right? It's me. I do. <laughs> and I had slowly been building an idea of what the people on this continent were like. Chinese people are never not online. Everything from ordering dinner to finding new love is done directly through their phones. The Japanese, on the other hand, they're less enthused about digital life, more content to stick with their traditions. 
I had slowly been piecing together their priorities when I was asked at the last minute to visit the places I had been studying. Business trips have always been tricky for a natural slacker like me. Multiple versions of myself engage in battle over how to conduct myself. Some parts of me want to impress the boss and do the business, and other parts want to treat it like a free vacation. Uh, in this case, visiting in an entirely new country for the first time in my life, other than Mexico, which I don't think counts for Arizonans, uh, I was a little too excited when they asked me to go. I had to keep reminding myself, this is work, this is work, and not get carried away asking, what type of duck should I order, and do I have to get itemized receipts? Uh, it turns out that Singapore is actually the best first stop one can make on a tour of Asia. Everybody speaks English. You can have any type of food you want. The city is literally just a bunch of malls and apartment towers strung together, street after beautiful street. And to be honest, I like a city that gets a little bent out of shape over the, the little tiny things. It's safe. Did you know that you can't chew gum while walking on the street in Singapore? It's a law. That kind of nuttiness really appeals to me. The work of appearing professional didn't really begin until the second stop in Shanghai. The president of my group joined me there, and suddenly I was using nearly all of my energy to appear invested in the work. And although I work with data, numbers were never my natural strong suit. So compiling results so that they make sense to me is one thing, but explaining them to other people with their questions, it's often too much. Shanghai is like Manhattan times three. It's gigantic and cosmopolitan. It borders the sea, and there's huge inlets snaking through the city. I get really sentimental about big cities. I'm also one of those people that pretends like I'm not a tourist. Like, no, no, I live here too. I also hate tourists. Uh, I never look up at big towers or, or, or landmarks so as not to give myself away, and I never act very friendly. The biggest shock was when I found out that there are essentially no traffic rules in Shanghai. It's as if all the drivers have silently agreed on a few basic concepts, and then they've accepted that everybody around them is constantly on the verge of doing whatever the fuck they want. <laughs> there may or may not be lanes, I don't know. When the light turns green, it's as if the earth tilts just a bit, and the cars slide along, letting gravity take them where they may. And scooters literally do whatever they want. The street's too busy, go on the sidewalk. Red light, not for you. It was in Shanghai where I had to hang out socially with my very senior colleague, so we spent a day walking around the city. Now, as you may know, there are quite a lot of people living in China, so personal space is not really a thing. Um, I found that holding your arms out stiff, like you're going into battle, helps you not to get knocked over but also makes you look like kind of a dick. So, as we walked toward the waterfront, I saw a teeny little doorway that led to what I thought would be an indoor food market. So, of course, I suggested we find out where it led. Turns out it was not a food market, it was a pet market. We were in the tiniest hallway where on both sides of us, there were shelves covered in cages. Cages filled with the cutest little turtles I've ever seen. Tiny glass cases with individually housed crickets. Apparently, they're lucky. Buckets stacked to the ceiling with fish. That night, I left my hotel again to walk around the neighborhood by myself. This was essentially the equivalent of walking around New York City for the first time at night, but I didn't feel afraid. I was buffeted by my otherness. My English, 
My English-speaking spe nature told me, I can go wherever. Nothing can harm me. I found that traveling can sometimes cause this type of thinking, as if other places exist on a different plane than you do, and you can sort of float above it untouched. Also past many more miniature pet markets. In Shanghai, you can take a breath and not know that you're breathing mostly pollution, but there are no such illusions in Beijing. Everywhere you go in Beijing, whether you're inside or on the street, you can smell exhaust. And after a few days, you will inevitably get sick. In Beijing, an office full of people can sound like an office full of nothing. Everyone regarded me as kind of an overcharged spark plug there, invariably laughing too loud, talking too excitedly. Also, by this time, I learned to own the fact that a good percentage of my food would likely drop through my chopsticks, but I still think it made everyone around me nervous. Presenting to my Chinese colleagues, I was told to take their non-committal reactions in stride. They don't emote very much, I had been warned. I made up for it by laughing too much at my own jokes, <laughs> playing with the laser pointer as if I had never seen a laser pointer before. <laughs> When I touched down in Hong Kong, the last stop on my Eastern adventure, transformation into the international business businessman was, in my mind, complete. I truly saw myself as some sleek 1960s executive jetting around the globe at my leisure, sipping on bourbon, hitting on flight attendants. <laughs> Hong Kong is small but dense. High rises are tightly packed, like sardines standing up on their tails. Every street has a new smell, and here I'll admit I worked very little. Instead, I hiked a little mountain in the middle of the city. I had an entire bottle of champagne to myself, and I read up on the country's quest to separate from Father China. How do they do it? I thought. The ones who travel all the time and can stop themselves from looking around in awe. I wondered for the first time if that's really something to yearn for. I kept it all off by accidentally booking business class for the 15-hour flight home, which I later learned is reserved for senior people only. But. By the time I had a glass of wine in my hand and was settled in to begin finding Nemo too, I forgave myself this small mistake. That was April Atwood. For years, Tiara Vian fought her crowning glory in "Just Go Ahead, Let Your Hair Down." We learn who won. Your selfie is 90% hair. That's the caption I see all the time in my Instagram feed. Hair is a big deal, and hair is technically a collection of dead keratin cells tumbling around your face, and those cells make you who you are, or at least that's what I had believed my entire life. When I was maybe six or seven, I had long, wavy, curly, fine hair. My mom tied it in twists and braids with brightly colored barrettes on the ends that always got lost on the school playground. My hair was healthy and shiny, and I could not have cared less about it. Wash days on Saturdays were a nightmare, mostly because it consisted of mom combing through the puffball for an hour, and then washing it in the sink while I lay on the counter, finishing it with a healthy dose of Palmer's pink oil and some fresh braids. But that routine worked for me. My mom would probably disagree because I have two sisters, and they each had thicker hair than I had. When I was 11, mom had had enough. 
I was charged with taking care of my hair as she had done for the last 10 years. I was completely unprepared and my hair suffered. I grew up on Davis Monthan Air Force Base in Tucson and my school had few people who looked like me. Most of the kids were white or Asian or Latino. I started to notice all the straight haired girls at school had beautiful hip length hair that flowed in the wind while my hair was frizzy and mainly stood up instead of cascading down my back. It was breaking off and my scalp was always itchy and no one thought it was pretty. I was depressed and started begging for a relaxer. If you don't know, a relaxer is a potent chemical hair treatment, much like a perm, but it makes kinky curly hair straight. And to me, straight hair was pretty hair and I wanted pretty hair. When I was 12, we were going to visit my auntie in Greensboro that summer, and she was a hairdresser. So I convinced my sisters, who are also suffering equally dry hair, that we should all get auntie to relax our hair. Against their better judgment, our parents caved, and we each got a relaxer that summer. We had also moved off base, so it was like a brand new beginning. Seventh grade was going to be awesome. <laughs> that fall, I walked into my middle school with laid hair. It was about shoulder length, and it blew in the wind. It was shiny, it was stick straight, and it was perfect. But of course, as a high-functioning introvert, I said nothing to my friends when they asked how summer was. I stared blankly at the boys when they said, you look different. And I sobbed internally when the white girls said I looked bald. My fine hair was flat, almost like I had no hair at all, which is what one boy said to me when he touched my hair. Side note, never touch a black woman's hair. <laughs> you have all been warned. So my little heart was crushed. I still didn't have hair like everyone else. Kids thought it was odd that every eight weeks I got a touch-up relaxer, you know, because my hair was still growing and curly. But with no guidance on how to take care of my hair, I didn't know what else to do but keep relaxing it. A few years later, I attended high school with about the same mix of kids, mostly white and Latino. Like seriously, at lunch, nearly all the black kids sat at three tables clustered together. It was in high school I discovered the curling iron. Ironic that I relaxed my curly hair to make it straight and then used a curling iron to make it curly again. <laughs> I clearly had no idea what I wanted. But everyone else had what they called barrel curls. Long, straight hair, lightly curled to give you Mila Kunis vibes. Anyone else watch that 70s show? <laughs> That's what I wanted. But what I got was more like Reba's hair in the 90s, <laughs> but without the bangs. I fried my hair every morning like that. It was flipped out to the sides, it was wispy, it was dry, it was damaged. Can you guess how long my hair was in high school? Still shoulder length. When I graduated, I wanted a fresh start, away from all the kids I went to high school with. They all went to the U of A, so I went to NAU and Flagstaff. <laughs> Flag was way more relaxed, meaning, that there was way less pressure to look a certain way. 
I met this black girl who told me she wasn't going to relax her hair anymore and just let it grow. She said she was embracing her natural hair. Her hair was shorter than mine, only half of it was curly and the other half was straight. Her curly roots and her straight ends looked strange to me and I couldn't bring myself to walk around with funny looking hair. So I kept up the relaxers. By the time we graduated, she had cut off her straight ends and was feeling herself in a cute, curly little bob. I was still hiding behind the relaxer. After college, I moved to Tucson and back into my parents' house because every millennial does it these days. <laughs> my younger sister, who has always had thicker, longer hair, was trying something new. She was relaxing her hair less, letting some texture back in, and it looked fabulous on her. Her hair was to her shoulder blades, um, but it wasn't dry or fried like mine. She discovered leave-in conditioner and hair oils and deep treatment masks. And she didn't use heat, and I had to find out what it was all about. So I Googled and YouTubed everything I could about letting texture back in while still relaxing, which is called text-laxing, by the way. <laughs> you just leave the treatment in for less time so it's not fully processed straight. And through all of that Googling, I stumbled upon natural hair videos. Black women were growing out their hair, just like my friend was in college. And as they grew it out, they hid the evidence of the two textures with cute, unassuming styles. They made it seem easy and even fun. They said things like, I'm ready to be who I've always been. Really? Just by growing out your hair? They all had healthy, gorgeous hair. And I was tired of having ugly hair in every picture I took because at this point, selfies were a thing. So I decided to give this natural hair thing a try. I stopped getting relaxers and my roots started to curl up and get thicker. I used conditioner like it was my job. I stopped using a curling iron and I started dreaming about long curly hair. It wasn't an easy process. I, my hair was uneven, it was unruly, and it was unbelievably tangled. The two textures did not play well together. Sometimes I'd be in the bathroom for two hours, finger combing through the knots. And I, 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 know, I could have just cut it all off and started over, but I was too insecure to have short, or rather shorter hair. I was transitioning to natural so I could keep the length. I started video recording my wash days because it really took an entire day to get it washed and styled. Literally, it was just me sitting in a bathrobe applying as much conditioner and oil to my hair so I could comb through the knots. From that, I started a YouTube channel and that was so other people might learn how to survive transitioning from relaxed to natural hair. And it was fun. People started to subscribe to my channel. They even thanked me for sharing my journey. And I found this whole community of women trying to figure out the natural hair thing. I made videos about the different styles I wore to disguise the two textures. I learned what worked and what didn't. And others learned along with me. I gained confidence because I finally felt like I knew how to do my own hair. It was a huge victory. My YouTube channel didn't start out glamorous. And I certainly wasn't confident that this natural hair thing was going to work out. But after two years of transitioning, I was ready to chop off the straight hair. I also discovered hair is just hair. While it tells a story, it's not the end of my story. 
Social media can and does make people feel self-conscious about their looks, but it did the opposite for me. I found a community where people cheer each other on in their hair journey, which is more like a journey of self-acceptance. And even though my selfies are 90% hair, my hair doesn't define me. I wear it how I like, and I no longer want approval from anyone. I'm done hiding behind that relaxer and embracing who I've always been. That was Tiara Vianne. In the amateur, Molly Dugan Mudick practices medicine on the side. Trying to figure out what's wrong with someone who's sick is as natural to me as breathing. When I was little, I used to daydream about being a doctor when I grew up. My dad's a doctor, my mom was a nurse, and when I was seven or eight, I discovered how amazing their medical journals were. I spent hours looking at them. Those pictures, they were both horrifying and mesmerizing. Big open sores, bodies covered by blistery rashes, tumors with teeth in them. And those black rectangles over their eyes? I didn't know they were for patient privacy. I tried to imagine what could be so hideous that they couldn't show them, considering what they were showing anyway. As I got older, I fell in love with TV medical shows. I started to feel sick one morning in seventh grade and ran through the possibilities in my mind. By second period, I was pretty sure it was either blood poisoning which I saw on Marcus Welby, or malaria, which I had seen on Medical Center. <laughs> By third period, I realized it had to be malaria because of that itchy mosquito bite near my knee. It was a sobering diagnosis. I hoped that I wasn't too late for treatment. That guy on Medical Center, he almost died. I got a hall pass to go to the nurse and told her I was pretty sure I had malaria. I listed my symptoms. I had a really bad headache. I spent the morning feeling hot and feeling cold, then feeling hot again, and a mosquito bite, which was every symptom that guy on Medical Center had. She took my temperature, looked at me for a few seconds, and then told me to go lie down while she went to, call, went to her office to call my mom to come get me. Honey, just so you know, you don't have malaria, my mom said as we walked to the car. How can you be sure, I asked her. I have all the symptoms. Shouldn't we at least pick up some quinine or something just in case? She sighed. You don't need quinine. Trust me, there's no malaria outbreak in Albuquerque. You're probably coming down with the flu. She was right. I got to hone some of my diagnostic skills the summer before my senior year in high school when I worked in my dad's urology office. My job was to help with the phones, the filing, and the insurance forms. But what I really loved to do was read the clinical notes and cover up the diagnosis and try to guess what they had. Urinary tract infection? Kidney stone? Enlarged prostate? 
And yes, I did diagnose myself with two of those that summer. <laughs> I was right about the urinary tract infection, wrong about the kidney stone, and quickly ruled out the enlarged prostate. It became clear to me that summer that what I really loved about medicine was trying to solve the puzzle. I had no desire to actually treat patients. I realized that a career in the medical field was probably not for me. Not that my math and chemistry grades would have gotten me into any reputable medical school anyway. My younger sister also daydreamed that she would be a doctor when she grew up. And today, she is a doctor. Watching her journey through medical school confirmed to me that I was not cut out to be an actual doctor. Oh, I loved hearing her stories about her classes and learning the mnemonic devices that her study group used for bone and nerve groups, especially the one that had all the first names of the kids in the Brady Bunch. But I could never have survived a year in anatomy class with a real cadaver. Oh, who am I kidding? I couldn't have handled any of those four years. Instead of looking at pictures of open sores and blistery rashes, I would have had to actually touch them and learn to make life and death decisions. No. Amateur diagnostician is my sweet spot. <laughs> I don't let the fact that my father, sister, and brother-in-law are actual licensed medical doctors stop me from giving my opinions. Sure, there's some good-natured teasing from the professionals in the family, but I stand by my training, which is, which is extensive and includes a lot of research on Google, WebMD, hours of medical show watching, drama, comedy, and especially reality, mystery diagnosis, trauma, life in the ER, my 600-pound life, <laughs> botched. You name it, I've watched it. The words, warning, the, pro the following program contains graphic scenes of actual surgery are like a siren call to me. <laughs> I also try to come up with the correct diagnosis in the Dr. Lisa Sanders column in the New York Times. While it's true I haven't been able to correctly identify a disease yet, I've learned about so many new afflictions to be on the lookout for. <laughs> and I do realize that my amateur diagnostic skills serve no purpose except to entertain me, but I consider it a harmless pastime. In fact, I feel like I'm keeping one of the tenets of the Hippocratic Oath by using my skills as a personal hobby and not a profession. First do no harm. <laughs> Except, every now and then, I do give medical advice to my kids who call me when they're not feeling good and aren't sure what to do. My son called me last winter and said he needed some medical advice. It turns out that his wife had been running a fever all day. He wasn't sure whether he should get her checked out at a walk-in clinic or just let her sleep and see if it got better. What's her temperature? I asked. It's normal now because she took some ibuprofen, but before it was 102. Is she achy? Is her throat sore? Her throat's okay, but yeah, she's got a headache, and it feels better when she's laying down. You know, 
I said, feeling a little unsure about giving advice to him about someone else. You might want to check with Grandpa or Aunt Kelly about this. Okay, he said. I just wanted to see what you thought first. Well, I have to admit, I was so flattered. <laughs> well, I said, if it were me, I'd probably wait a while. If you go to a walk-in clinic, she's going to be miserable sitting there waiting to be seen and around lots of sick people the whole time. See if the fever comes back after the ibuprofen wears off. Maybe she can sleep a little. That's just what I was thinking, he said. Thanks, Mom. The fever came back, and he ended up taking her to a walk-in clinic, and they gave her an antibiotic, and she started feeling better. So, no harm done. And my daughter called me one afternoon last spring from college in Boston to tell me that her stomach hurt. She was vomiting and had diarrhea, and she wasn't sure what to do. Do you have a fever, I asked. I don't think so. Does your stomach hurt in one spot? No, all over, she said. It kind of comes in waves, and my back kind of hurts too, and I feel like I'm going to throw up again. What should I do? Oh, honey, I answered. That sounds like the stomach flu to me. You need to stay hydrated. Do you have any popsicles? No? Try to drink a little water if you can. Take it easy and let it run its course. Keep me posted. Call or text me anytime. I hope it goes away soon. She texted me a few hours later. It hurts really bad. I'm going to the student health center before it closes. I got a call a, few, a short while later. She was crying. Mom, they think it's my appendix. They're sending me to the hospital for a CAT scan. It's so scary. I wish you were here. Oh, shit, I said. <laughs> Your appendix? What hospital? I'll be on the red eye and be with you before you wake up in the morning. I felt awful. What if she had laid there sipping water and her appendix had burst? I really thought it was just the stomach flu. From now on, I vowed, the only advice I'm going to give the kids is, go see a doctor. I packed a bag and we stayed in touch for the next few hours as she was seen in the ER, got an IV started, and waited for her CAT scan. I got a call from her before we left for the airport. Mom, they did the CAT scan, and it turns out I have acute gastroenteritis, the stomach flu. <laughs> I'm feeling a little better, and they're sending me home. <laughs> I was actually woozy with relief. I was so happy she was okay and that she didn't need to have surgery 2,600 miles away from home. But if I'm being completely honest, <laughs> I was also really happy that my diagnosis was right. That was Molly Dugan Mudick. Finally, Cindy Dash talks about what it means to go home with three stars in the sky. When my mom turned 80, her friends and I planned a party. Her friends, our group of Orthodox Jewish women from Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all live in the same building. I was raised Orthodox Jewish in this same community. We kept kosher. 
And we kept the Sabbath, which means Saturday is a day of rest. The Sabbath is observed from sundown on Friday to sunset, or when three stars can be seen in the sky on Saturday night. In the final weeks of planning, on a phone call with my mom's friend, Gloria, she asked, what day are you flying in? Thursday night. My lie was instant. We were actually flying in on Saturday the Sabbath. It was my predisposition to lie about breaking the Sabbath. <clears throat> but I had not lied about breaking the Sabbath for over two decades. And there it was rolling off my tongue like I'd been doing it every day for the past 40 years. These ladies knew I was not an observant Jew. They knew I was married to a recovering Catholic. But my mind did that math of trying to figure out what answer would please them most. I've always had a dislike of orthodoxy and extremism. In second grade, I disrupted the class when I asked, if God had made everyone, why did he make my brother deaf? That got me sent to the principal's office, and the principal explained that we do not need to ask so many questions because God is good, and God has a plan. We are a tribe of intellectuals, but we do not question God's intent. On the flight to New York, my husband asked for clarity. Let me get this straight, he said. If your mom's friends ask when we flew in, we say Thursday, not Saturday? Yes. <laughs> we have been together for 25 years, and he has never been to any of my family functions. This was his first, and I had asked him to walk in lying. <clears throat> what if they ask what we've been doing since Thursday, he asked. We are with my friends from high school. You don't have friends from high school, he reminded me. My friends from high school are religious, so we didn't stay friends. But I have fictional religious friends from high school. And we literally and figuratively go back decades. <laughs> when I was young and would get caught turning on a light or the television on the Sabbath, my father would tell me that I was upsetting God and that God was unhappy and he, my father, was ashamed of me. I wasn't convinced. I knew of our angry God, his punishment is epic. Years of famine, lean cows, boils, locust. But it didn't seem plausible. We lived in a really nice neighborhood in Brooklyn and my father drove a Camry. <laughs> I wasn't a bad kid. I watched ABC after school specials. I wasn't a shoplifter. I wasn't a drunk, I wasn't in a gang, nor a rival gang. But when it came to the Sabbath, I was bad. When I was 12, I told the truth. I told my parents I didn't believe. My father told me I should be ashamed of myself. I asked, why couldn't we ride in the elevator in the Sabbath instead of walking up 14 flights of stairs to see my grandmother? My father explained that pressing a button in an elevator was work, and we cannot work on the Sabbath. I tried to reason. It seemed that walking up 14 flights of stairs was more work than pressing a button. <clears throat> Do you like having a roof over your head, he asked. We can make arrangements for you not to have one. And because of those ABC after school specials, I wasn't ready to be a runaway. <laughs> I was not the only one in my community who pushed the boundaries. In middle school, 
There was a group of boys that loved the Yankees, and they discovered a newsstand that played the games on a television. On the Sabbath, these boys would stand on their corner with their yarmulkes on their heads and watch the games. My father said they were not breaking the Sabbath because they had not turned on the television nor asked anyone to do it for them. In high school, there were two boys who were devout Ranger fans, and they were devastated over a Saturday night playoff game that began before the Sabbath ended. The boys walked from Avenue J in Brooklyn to Madison Square Garden. They walked 9.5 miles in dress shoes. They had season tickets and had brought their subway tokens with them to get home. My father didn't approve, but he did say it was clever. <laughs> For a while, I had boundary-pushing friends, and we were scared of our angry God, but each time we strayed and nothing happened, no lightning, no boils, we slid a shade darker. <clears throat> On the Sabbath, we would walk to a subway station away from our neighborhood, and ride into the city to walk around the west and east villages. We went to Coney Island. It was exciting, breaking religious law like that, being with the non-religious and the non-Jews. We were always home before the three stars in the sky. With time, most of my friends returned to orthodoxy and they began getting married. That's when they became my fictional friends and my alibi. I would tell my parents that I was with them when I went to the city to Central Park. I was 18 the first time I got into the car on a Sabbath. I was going to night school and I was studying marketing and working full time in the garment industry. Coworkers invited me out and I was not about to say, oh, I have to get home for the Sabbath and help my mother with the gefilte fish. So I went out and I stayed as late as I could. I then hailed a cab and asked the driver to leave me 10 blocks from my house so not to be seen by members of our congregation. When I got home, I explained it all. I worked late and I got on the M train. It was all my fault. The track was closed. We got routed to Columbus Circle where I had to get on the F train to then get on the D train to get back to Brooklyn. I got off when the Sabbath began and walked home. My father was upset with me daily, but he was also impressed that I was working and going to night school. He said he understood work commitments, but I needed to do a better job with my time management. And Mayor Koch was a terrible mayor, and he was doing nothing to fix the subway system, and this is why we needed a Republican mayor. <laughs> Eventually, I came home very late, and no lie could cover my intention. My father called me into his bedroom. My mother sat at his side and he said, you disgust me and you are a disgrace to this family. He told me to leave his room and think about the roof that I had over my head. And I cried. I cried because a father's shame is incredibly powerful and I understood that he chose God. I worked and I went to night school for a reason. I called a roommate service and the following month, I was in a one bedroom apartment with a loft above the bedroom and a sofa bed in the living room and we were three girls and the sofa bed was all mine. My parents persisted. 
They expected me home every weekend because what else would a nice Jewish girl be doing on the Sabbath? My fictional friends were at my side. I told my parents that we were attending Jewish singles weekends because the best and brightest Jews were in the city. The high holidays and the family weddings became the next hurdle. Friends were not more important than a cousin's bar mitzvah or a Passover. And my parents were suspicious. I was 24. They couldn't understand how someone like me, fairly attractive, my dad said, <laughs> attended singles weekends nearly every weekend, and I was still single. <laughs> All of their friends, sons and daughters were getting married. Lying is hard and it wears you down. When I get into a car or a train on the Sabbath, I always whisper, wish, pray that we won't crash. Because we don't want our last conversation to have been a lie. Lying is hard, and it became a twitch in my right eye, and then it became an ulcer. And in therapy, I came to understand that I had to put distance between us. I had to leave New York. So I moved out west, and it became easier for my father to explain me away. My mother had always stood by my father. She didn't agree with him, but she would never disagree until I moved away. She told my father that he did not have to have a relationship with me, but she would speak with me and she would see me. It made him angry, and it brought him comfort. I maintained a relationship with my fictional friends because whenever I go home for a holiday or a wedding, I can spend a night or two with them in the city. And eventually I did reconnect with real old friends who had also become dark, dark, dark gray. <laughs> Having landed safely in New York the night before my mother's party, my husband and I rode in an Uber to our Airbnb. I looked at the night sky for the three stars. My phone rang. It was Gloria. Are we all set for the party? We were. What did you do today? We spent the day with my friends from high school, I said. <laughs> it was so great to see them. And it was true, because lies often become our very old friends. That was Cindy Dash. That's it for this episode of the Barflies podcast. You can catch the next Barflies performance Wednesday, August 15th at Valley Bar. Special thanks to co-curator Katie Johnson, podcast producer Sarah Ventry, Charlie Levy, David Maroney, and the rest of the folks at Valley Bar, and to Calexico for our theme music. Music.